This term we are looking at our teaching series in Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. And if you're following along with that reading, uh, you might have noticed that the word comfort appears a number of times in today's passage. Uh, In this uh, term, as we look at this ancient letter, my prayer is that as a church, we will get a richer, much richer understanding of the reality of God's comfort. I remember in year seven, uh, a teacher at my high school died midway through the year, and it was a Christian boys' school, and at his funeral, a staff member shared one of the final words that this teacher, who was a Christian, uh, shared before he died. He said, if only all the boys knew the comfort of God, their lives would be so much richer. That small little phrase has stuck with me to this day because actually the comfort of God is not something that we talk too much about as a church. Perhaps it's because we might have been uh, burnt by empty words of comfort. We know that our words of comfort can be empty, can be hollow, and they can often do more harm than good. Uh, in the last month, I had to take one of my daughters uh, to the doctor to have a checkup on a very minor issue, and uh, my daughter hates going to the doctor in case, like we all do really, in case you get a needle or something like that, uh, and it can hurt a bit. So wanting to be, you know, the, the dad of all comfort, <laughs> I said to my daughter, it's okay, we're just going to go to the doctor, you won't have to have a needle or any treatment today, we're just going to check up. So trembling... My daughter trusted me and I took her to the local GP and sure enough, the GP said straight away, we need to deal with this and gave her a needle straight away. (laughs) It's all okay. It was nothing serious, but there was this look of terror in my daughter's eyes as she looked not at the doctor, not at the needle, but at me. (laughs) I'd given her words of comfort, but they were very clearly now empty words and she won't trust me again regarding doctors for a while. My words of comfort had helped for a very short-term problem, getting my daughter in the car to go to see the doctor, but they really haven't helped my long-term goal of being a trustworthy father who can offer real comfort. Now, as adults, we can be quite hardened to the whole idea of offering words of comfort. We don't want to give empty words. We don't want to be people of empty words. And nor do we like receiving and hearing and taking to heart comforting words of others, perhaps because we've grown sceptical of empty promises. I've been listening to a podcast uh, recently by Australian comedian Will Anderson over the last uh, over the last month. It's called Willosophy. And he interviews a number of Australian comedians and celebrities, people like Sean McAuliffe, Kate Langbrook, Glenn Robbins. Uh, and the point of the podcast seems to be opening up a conversation with Will Anderson's um, friends and colleagues in the industry, about their philosophy of life. And what's been interesting has been that nearly every episode he asks the guests what they think happens after they die. Now, Will Anderson, being an atheist, uh, is upfront in his belief that he he thinks nothing happens after, after people die. But what's been interesting with all these comedians, including Will Anderson, who I kind of grew up with hearing him on a whole bunch of different shows, 
has been how they've reflected on their own attitude to faith and how it's changed over the years. So nearly all the guests on the show are either atheists or agnostics. And, and they, they, they say that their position on the existence of God hasn't changed in their adult life. But what is fascinating is that nearly all of them now say that they're much more mellow these days in their um, attitude to people believing in the afterlife than when they were younger at the beginning of the, you know, on the comedy circuit, they would, they would ridicule Christians or people who believed in things like heaven or believed in the existence of God. They would mock them and point out how stupid they are and all those kind of things. But now, as you see these guests interviewed, they, they have this kind of moment of reflection that whilst they don't believe in heaven and hell, they don't want to mock anyone who believes in it because if believing in God or an afterlife gives somebody some comfort and strength to get through their life, why would they want to take that away from them? Now, that sounds really nice, doesn't it? It sounds like there's been a bit of a shift in maybe the tone of the national conversation. But as I listen to these interviews, I don't know about you, but I find these kind of comments incredibly patronising. And it's quite illuminating, really, how many people in Australia view people of religious faith. They've latched onto something that provides them comfort in order not to deal with the fact that after we die, nothing happens. Uh, there was an audio book by David Mitchell. I've been listening to a lot of comedians recently. David Mitchell, Would I Lie to You? And he says the fear of irrelevance and oblivion is so strong that people will even believe in a heaven and a hell, a heaven and an afterlife so as not to deal with the meaningless of their own lives. I wanted to do this particular series in 2 Corinthians, particularly at this time of year, when it's cold, some of us might be feeling more run down than normal, and maybe our, most of us, probably all of us, our New Year's resolutions could well have truly worn off by now. I want to do it at this time of the year because it's really important for us to be real about the fact that the Christian life is hard. It's not all there is to say about the Christian life, but I want us to be honest that as Christians, we will struggle to take hold of the comfort that God offers us. Later this term, uh, we're going to spend some time reflecting on the particular challenge of mental health and the Christian life. And as a church, I feel like we're really just scratching the surface of understanding the extent to which mental health and mental illness particularly affects all of us, whether directly or indirectly. We're going to be doing that a little bit later in the term. But I'm not sure what your experience of church is. If you come to church regularly, uh, if you come here regularly, I assume your experience of BHAC is probably not too bad. Otherwise, you would have stopped coming a while ago. Maybe you're dragged along. So you don't apologise if that's the case, but I assume if you're here regularly, uh, your experience of church is not all bad, it's probably more good than bad. (laughs) But I assume for many of us, probably most of us, we will have difficulties with church. Difficulties with, that we, difficulties that we struggle to share, difficulties that we struggle to articulate, Perhaps church on Sundays 
for you might feel like an incredibly lonely experience, despite the fact there are 60-odd people in the room. Perhaps you come here, sit down, chat to a few people, go home, feeling like you're the odd one out, spiritually. That you are struggling, possibly struggling to believe, struggling to understand, struggling to obey. But the impression that you get from everyone else is everyone is doing okay, at least spiritually. I mean, yes, we're, we might be worried about our children, our parents, our timetables, our busyness, and all these other things. But spiritually, everyone seems to be okay because, well, no one speaks up about their struggles. No one's asking for help. And so you're not going to ask for help. Now, I'm not saying this is what happens, but this can be our experience from time to time. And I want to say that church life can feel hard and we need to be real that the Christian life can feel hard. And if that is you, I, need to, I want to assure you whatever impression that you get, you're not alone. Living life following Jesus is in many ways a paradox. It is the experience on the one hand of liberation, the removal of burdens and of guilt, but also following Jesus is like, well, the experience of Jesus. Suffering, hardship. If you have your Bible still open, have a look there, verse 8 and 9 of the opening chapter of 2 Corinthians. This is what Paul says. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardship we suffered in the province of Asia. We're under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Paul wants his readers in Corinth to know about the reality of his suffering. He wants them to know that he is suffering, and this suffering is a mark of the authenticity of of his apostleship of Jesus. Now, the, the church in Corinth, for a bit of context, was, is a city that was tempted to really be attracted to the teaching of other leaders that promised prosperity, power. They were the kind of uh, apostles or false apostles who were the great intellectuals, the great impressive orators, the charismatic people of great influence and power. They didn't speak much about suffering and and they certainly didn't present any sense of showing any sign of weakness. But Paul wants the church in Corinth not to know about his success, but about his failures. Now, my job, I really don't have the need to be on a network like LinkedIn, but I, I remember I created an account a number of years ago, and it was fascinating recently just seeing the different creative ways that people are able to sell themselves and their achievements, hoping to be you know, headhunted for a promotion. I saw recently, actually, it was a, it's a sad story, I saw a friend of mine who went through college who is no longer a Christian anymore, and he was sacked from his previous job. He listed his previous job as the rector of a church, and he listed in terms of I've got skills in vision setting, managing a budget, blah, 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 all these kind of things. Very impressive, not, not mentioning nowhere that he was sacked for a great failing. 
Now, can you imagine if Paul had a LinkedIn account? Perhaps some might accuse him of oversharing, but he wants the church in Corinth to know not just of the severe hardship that he was facing when he suffered in Asia, but the fact that what he, fa- he, he didn't have the skill set to endure it. He despaired of life itself. He didn't want to go on. He felt in his heart that he was as good as dead. Paul, the great apostle, the great leader of the early church, is saying he can't cope. He doesn't want to live. He felt as good as dead. We can struggle to be that real about our struggles following Jesus, don't we? But Paul can. Paul is honest. Our brothers and sisters in Minyeri, a church which we have a partnership with in the Northern Territory, every time we visit, are always an encouragement and a rebuke to me. They are honest, well, more honest than me about their struggles following Jesus and the challenges that they face. One of the things that I've heard a few times is members of the church talk about the way that there seems to be a wall between them and God for a certain season, making them feel, making it feel impossible for them to pray. Now, we don't usually talk about that over morning tea, do we? Don't we? So how's the week? Oh it's, oh, it's been good. There's a wall between me and God at the moment. I can't pray very well. Can you please help me pray, pray for me? But we can relate to that experience, what they're articulating. We will have all experienced somewhere in our life that feeling of the block or the difficulty of coming before God. So why do we need to be this honest about the Christian life being a life of hardship? Why do we have to be so real about this? Why is it so important? Well, the reason we see Paul gives us in this chapter is that we're only going to receive God's comfort to the extent that we know about our own weakness. The theme of the second letter to uh, the Corinthians is the theme that God's power always comes in the form of weakness. And the audience, as I mentioned before, the Christians in Corinth, a city that they felt that they didn't need any comfort. It's a very strange way to open a letter to a church that didn't, wasn't, didn't think they were suffering anyway. You imagine if, you know... I came and chatted to you and every, life's going perfect, life's going really well and then you just start talking about the comfort that God offers in your sufferings. You're like, hang on, why are you telling that to me? Life's going well, don't bring me down. He opens with this, this very prosperous city with people, very impressive, well-to-do people and he spends the whole letter trying to turn their worldview upside down to help them see what really is power in, 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 in terms of God's perspective It comes through the form of weakness. What they think is power is actually shallow and hollow and ultimately unsatisfying. Well, then how does God comfort us in our weakness? How does he do it? Uh, In January, we did a short series called Five Things That Jesus Never Said. I wasn't here for it, but one of the Sundays, uh, we looked at the fact that Jesus never said the phrase, God will never give us more than we can handle. Very popular phrase. You might, have, you might be able to buy a little 
wall plaques on it or something like that to remind you. And I, I sympathise with the, with the sentiment behind it and the intention. But what it does, it actually paints God. The intention is to paint God as a God who knows us so much that he won't give us more than we can handle. But it actually paints God out to be quite distant. <laughs> like he, he loads each one of us up with a quota of life projects and issues and he kind of goes, you know, look, oh, Rich, you said here's, I, I know that Rich can only cope with uh, a wife like Julie, so I'll just give Julie, and Julie can only cope with Rich, that's about as much as they can cope with, so uh, that's as much, so, and then I'll leave them to manage for themselves, and, you know, it's all okay, no, they're shaking their heads, that's all right. <laughs> but where the tragedy happens is when we get to the point in our lives where we feel like we can't go on, we're feeling completely spent, we're feeling like we we want to end it all. How does, our, how, does, how does that moment feel when we've had the view up to this point that God will never give me more, more than I can handle? Well, our, our final disappointment is that either God doesn't care for me because he has given me more than I can handle or God isn't there and the mantra of God never gives us more than handles, it's become another one of those empty phrases of comfort to help us short-term, but really lets us down when we need it most. What do you notice about what Paul actually says about his suffering? Verse 9. This suffering, this, this sense in which he, he, he despaired, even of life itself, this happened that we, he's talking about we, the apostles, the people who, who are suffering in a similar way to him, might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. So the first thing we can say about the way that God comforts us is by teaching us, training us to rely on him, not ourselves. Now, if you've gone through a time of intense crisis as a Christian where you felt totally and utterly helpless to change the situation. Sometimes it could even be with a, a lost child or something like that. P- people will often say, all I could do is pray. Or I'm so grateful many people are praying for me or something like that. And it's often at those times of intense crisis that our helplessness, God calls, in our helplessness, our reliance on God and our dependence on him is strongest. And that is the experience for many people that in times of great darkness, you might look back and say your prayer life was strongest. But that won't be the experience for a lot of people. Some people here might be thinking, no, no, (laughs) During times of great darkness, that was when God felt the most distant. When I felt as good as dead, spiritually, emotionally, I didn't even have the energy to call on God. I felt completely and utterly helpless. Which brings us to the gift of the Christian community and the vital Role it plays in being a vessel for God's comfort. Have a look there in verse 10. On him, we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us 
as you, Corinthians, help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. So do you see how Paul has helped in his intense suffering? Through the prayers of his Christian brothers and sisters as they pray and support each other as followers of Jesus. So one of the fascinating things when you look at the life and ministry of Paul is just not only how much he suffered, and he really did suffer, he was almost shipwrecked at some point, he was at the brink of being executed and giving up, is the way that God sustains Paul, and it seems like a supernatural way, but much of it is Paul, Paul keeps pointing it back to the very ordinary, which we know are extraordinary, but the very ordinary prayers of God's people. So if we want to be, be hacked, a genuine comfort to those who join us, it must mean we're a community that is honest about our weaknesses and committing to praying for each other in our struggles. Now, it's important to say, sometimes we think, well, the, the people who pray for those who are struggling are the people who are doing okay, and the people who are struggling are the people who receive the prayers. And that can sometimes be the case in extreme situations. But the normal thing is that we are comforted in our own struggles as we pray for other people. You might have experienced that. As you pray for other people in their struggles and hardships, that you are strengthened in your own situation. Now, all churches have structures, they have systems in place that are intended to help churches grow as God intends us to grow. Now, two of the basic structures that we have at BHAC, and they're, they're not mandated in the New Testament or anything like that, is what we do here on Sundays and our midweek growth groups. And there's nothing in the New Testament that commands us to meet at the, you know, at, at the Woodhouse's house on Wednesday night or anything like that. There's nothing like that. But what we see in the New Testament time and time again is the talk about Christians being committed to each other, committed to caring for each other, praying for each other, meeting together regularly, and most importantly, knowing each other. So knowing each other's struggles. So what we have at BHAC is we have two basic structures that we encourage everyone to be a part of, and that is what we do here on Sunday each week. We come to weekly be reminded of God's promises to us as we open his word together and sing his praises. And our midweek groups are smaller places where we can develop a network of relationships around God's word where we can be more honest. We won't always be brutally honest. That might be saved for a couple of people, but we'll be more honest and we can support each other in our weaknesses. Now, there'll be other networks that you'll have and, and that's okay, but the, that's, that's just a bit of a snapshot of those two basic structures that we have as a church that we encourage people to be involved in so that we can be a comfort to each other and support for each other. Well, let's return to where we started. How do we know that the comfort of God are not simply empty words of comfort? Well, we can see in this passage, we can see as we read the New Testament that God has gone before us. In his son, he has gone 
before us and he knows our deepest suffering. He has suffered and bled and died for us on the cross. He's also gone on before us in the deliverance. In his resurrection. So we have these these two flags in history, verifiable. This is not just philosophies of life. These are things that can be examined, checked out, where the God of the universe has come to us, made himself known to us in the person of his son as a demonstration that he knows weakness, he knows suffering, and that true power comes through great weakness. Then the second flag is the resurrection, proof that God is committed to his promises. The words of comfort that we read are not empty. They're verifiable. Unlike the weak words I offered my daughter in the moment that helped me in the short term but created more problems, what we have is that we've, God has demonstrated that he can be trusted and that as we pray for each other and we come before God, he comforts us because of a reality. So what we're going to do just now, I'm going to give us a moment just to come before God in the quietness of our own hearts and uh, we're going to sing a song which is a bit of a response and we'll have some time to spend um, sharing the Lord's Supper together. But at the end of the service today, I'm going to sit um, up the front if anyone would like like prayer, um, would like to uh, pray, uh, I'll be more than happy and keen to, to, to pray, um, not not because of anything super spiritual about me, but I'd love to be able to have that privilege of um, sharing with you. Uh, but we'd love that culture to continue to grow here on Sundays as well as in our midweek group. So I'm going to give us a moment now just to uh, come before our Father in prayer, knowing that he knows our hearts and we can bring before him anything. And then I'll pray for us and then we'll sing together. Father, we give you thanks that you are the God of all comfort. We're sorry for the ways in which we seek comfort in the comfortable things rather than the comfort that you offer us. We're sorry for the ways in which we can present a facade of strength And, and uh, be deceptive or deceive others about our real weaknesses. You know our hearts. Help us to know our own hearts and help us to know that we are not called to rely on ourselves but on you. And we ask that you'll help us to be a community that continues to pray for each other and have a concern for each other to press on as followers of your son. Pray that you'll be sustaining our growth group leaders as they lead various groups. We pray that these will be places with great honesty and trust. We pray that more and more people will join our community to come to know you, the God of all comfort.
Amén.